Good morning. My name is Greg Slater, as I was telling the children. I want to thank you, the congregation, as well as the session and Pastor Jeremiah for the opportunity to once again uh, open God's Word and bring it to you this morning. My wife Lucille and I counted a, a joy uh, to be in a unofficial sense a part of the Centennial family and uh, to worship with you whenever we have that opportunity. Pastor Jeremiah has begun a, a series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and so we're going to turn again to the book of Ephesians this morning uh, with the opening verses of chapter 2. But let's begin with prayer. Our gracious God, we ask this morning that you would use your wonderful and powerful word in our lives, both for those who are gathered here, those who are listening uh, through electronic media. Lord God, we are thankful that your word is powerful and active and able to pierce even the hardest heart. And so, Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would work in us graciously this morning. And there would be those that you would draw to into the fullness of life through the power of your word and the gift of your son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read those opening three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Hear now the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Have you ever experienced the steady pull of an undertow while playing in the surf at the beach? Or the even greater power of a rip current resulting from a storm that perhaps is not even visible out at sea? Many people, not only unaware tourists drowsing on a float, but even experienced swimmers have found themselves in the life-threatening situation of being pulled out to sea by these unseen forces. And as they try and return to shore, soon they become so exhausted that they would have drowned if an alert lifeguard or a boater had not come to their rescue. We will see this morning that God's Word is warning us of an even more desperate situation that describes every human being who is not trusting in Christ as their Savior. Just a few verses later in this chapter, in Ephesians 2.12, Paul sums it up this way, saying that those who do not belong to Christ have no hope and are without God in this world. Can you conceive of a more bleak description? Remember, the Apostle Paul here is writing to Christians. 
But this is a message which every person on earth needs to hear and understand. Pardon me, my throat is very dry this morning. So our first point, all human beings, apart from Christ, are spiritually dead. Now you may be sitting here this morning or at home as someone who has never actually placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and yet you're saying to yourself, I am quite alive, thank you. I think, I love, I speak, I do as I please. I am very much alive. And yet the Apostle Paul is saying to you, no, you are actually dead. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, Paul means a number of things. First of all, when Paul says you are dead, he means you are in a state of spiritual alienation from God. You see, life in its fullness, as God intended from the beginning, involves having a deep, personal relationship with our Creator. And apart from such a relationship of love and trust, the Bible teaches there is no true life. You can be breathing. You can be doing what you want to do. You can be choosing what seems best to you. And yet if you are a human being created in the image of God and you are not in saving fellowship with the one who created you, who created you for an eternal communion with himself. You are not experiencing real life. Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that he came to bring us abundant, overflowing life. Because without him, we do not have it. Lest you misunderstand, Christ and Paul are not simply using a figure of speech. Biblically, if you study the term, death involves separation. But not merely the separation of body and soul we all know as physical death. No, death in the Bible begins with our being spiritually alienated and out of fellowship with God. And if we remain in that state, it can result in eternal separation from God in hell. But the Apostle Paul also explains here in verse 1 the reason for this state of separation and alienation when he states, writing to the Ephesian Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Sin is the root of this state of death into which all human beings are born. Now contrary to those who think that children are born innocent, and it is tempting to think so, we have a five-month-old granddaughter. The Bible teaches that we all share in God's judgment upon the sin of our forefather Adam. Since he was acting as our covenantal representative in the Garden of Eden, 
His disobedience brought spiritual alienation from God as well as physical death upon all mankind. This is clearly set forth in the book of Romans in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. But I'll just read verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul means in Adam as our representative. But we not only share in Adam's punishment, we also share in his fallen rebellious sin nature. So that from birth, we quickly display an overriding desire to put ourselves first and to refuse to submit to God's rightful authority in our lives. Thus in countless ways, in thought and word and deed, we transgress God's commandments and sin. The sins, he says in verse 2a, in which they, these Ephesian Christians, used to walk. That's an interesting term, isn't it? The Greek actually says used to walk, because walking is a metaphor in the New Testament for one's manner of life, way of life. You see, because sinful actions and attitudes come from a rebellious heart, our fallen nature affects, infects everything we do in thought and word and deed. Listen to what our Lord said about that in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Paul spells this out in our text in the first part of verse 3. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Thus, our condition without Christ is correctly described, you may or may not be familiar with this term, as total depravity. Now, let me be very, very clear. I am not saying that most people are pure evil or absolutely depraved like Satan is. Rather, I am saying that everything a non-believer does, even when they're being kind and moral, is polluted by sin in some way. Perhaps by pride or the idea that they are earning God's favor by doing what is right. Thus Isaiah declared to the Jewish people in Isaiah 64, 6 that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. But Paul is not done. He goes on to say that those who are spiritually dead are dominated by this world. 
and the ruler of the forces of darkness, in addition to their own sinful desires. Listen to verse 2 of our text. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the apostle is saying that those who are spiritually dead are dominated and directed by the urgings and the desires and the instincts of the world and of the flesh and the devil. They're not getting their marching orders from God. They're getting their marching orders from the world. From the sinful desires of the flesh and from Satan himself. For that is who Paul is describing here as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now while Satan is not omnipresent as God is, he and his demonic minions move freely through the earth. And that is why Jesus called him the prince of this world in John 12, 31. Paul is by no means saying that all non-believers are demon-possessed. What he is saying is that all non-believers are extremely vulnerable to demonic influences and depression. Especially, think of this, especially those who deny the reality of such forces. They may mock such talk about demonic oppression as uneducated, ridiculous. But God's word clearly states right here in our text that Satan is now at work in those who are disobedient. I mean, even as believers, as children of the light, indwelt by the Spirit of God, we must continually be on guard against Satan's attacks. I encourage you to take time this afternoon to read in the last chapter of the book of Ephesians. Paul's exhortation beginning in verse six, in chapter 6 verse 10 about putting on the armor of God which we must do every day to withstand the attacks of the devil. Paul then concludes this passage by emphasizing that everyone who is in this state of spiritual death alienated and separated from God by their sin and unbelief not only faces God's wrath at the end of their lives. But they are already objects of his just and holy wrath in this life. I pray that I'm being clear, for this is the urgent, inspired warning being delivered by the Apostle Paul. It is not only heinous criminals and blatantly wicked individuals such as Vladimir Putin, for example, that are being described here. But every single person who is not personally trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. You can see more about what our Lord Jesus says about this in John chapter 3, down in verse 36, John 3, 36. Paul underscores that point by repeatedly emphasizing 
right here. That these early Christians to whom he is writing had been under that same condemnation before they were saved. Listen again. Let me read our text to you. And just highlight the way he is phrasing this as he is led by the Holy Spirit. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, Paul includes himself, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Men and women, do you, you do not want to live this life as an object of God's wrath. And you do not, you certainly do not want to leave this life as an object of God's wrath. See, for example, Hebrews 10.31. Hebrews 10.31. Yet the situation is even more dire than I've already described. Because sinful men and women are not only alienated from God and under His wrath, but let's turn to the, to the critically important implications of what we've just learned. So my second point this morning is that those who are spiritually dead are unable to save themselves. I agree with Dr. Ligon Duncan who once said, now this my friends is utterly alien to what the world tells us about ourselves as humans. The world tells us that we are basically good. And if we can just make ourselves determined, we can do anything. Now, in this life, we can accomplish many things. But in the realm of salvation, that proposition is utterly lethal. He goes on to say, the Apostle Paul is here to tell us that with regard to our salvation, there is no help in us. There is no good in us that can make us right with God. And furthermore, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Dr. Duncan ends saying, now that's vitally important for us to hear. This inability to save ourselves is a crucial implication of being spiritually dead. Paul does not say here that we are merely sick or even critically ill spiritually. He says that we are dead. And as you know, Dead people are rarely able to do much to improve their situation. Though one corpse did sit up one time when my high school buddy Hal, who worked at a funeral home, was driving a hearse back from picking up a body at the hospital. It was only the result of rigor mortis setting in, but Hal almost ran off the road when it happened. But you get the point that Paul is making here. 
other biblical writers agree. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And a few pages earlier, in Jeremiah 13.23, he wrote, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard is spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. No wonder our Lord Jesus described those who were lost as being slaves of sin in John 8.34. And thus Paul wrote, turning to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We may be miserable in our sins, and thirsty for life. But sinners are unable and unwilling on their own to truly repent and to turn to God and to place their trust in Him as their Lord and Savior. Now do you see that those outside of Christ are truly lost unless God intervenes? That was the lesson God taught Ezekiel in chapter 37 in the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. God gave Ezekiel that vision as a dramatic illustration of the spiritual condition of Israel. Let's turn there. Ezekiel 37. And I'll read the opening six verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, we understand that to have been a vision. But the lesson and the implications readily apply to this very day. Unless God's Spirit breathes new life into us, we will remain dead in our sins. Unless God gives us a new heart to replace what He calls our heart of stone, as he promised in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, 
we will never love and trust him as we should. Let me read that, those two verses to you. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Where the Lord God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, meaning a living heart. We must experience regeneration, new birth, new life by the grace of God. A new birth as Jesus described it to Nicodemus. And that, those very familiar verses at the beginning of John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I'll begin with verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, Jesus is saying, we must have this new birth or we will be lost forever under the judgment that our willful sins deserve. Now many people object to this teaching, even though it is clearly biblical. They say, well, if that's the case, then we can't do anything about it. It's just the way it is. We're helpless and hopeless, and all we can do is just recognize that unless God does something, we can't exercise faith or we can't repent. It doesn't make sense, they say. You preachers say on the one hand to repent and believe. And on the other hand, you tell us you're spiritually dead and you can do nothing. That's contradictory. It's the way one person put it. But it isn't really. The Bible is simply stating the fact that the righteous God who created us and rules this universe holds us accountable for our willful daily rebellion against his authority over our lives. And yet, in his astonishing mercy, he has made it possible for his justice to be upheld and our sins to be forgiven through the incredible willing sacrifice of his son in our place. Listen to Titus, chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you hear that? By the washing of regeneration, which is the gift of new life, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the God of life and love is able to give us the saving faith we so desperately need to recognize our sinfulness and to turn to Him as Paul later declares just a few verses down from our text in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may post. No wonder Jonah declared after God rescued him, salvation comes from the Lord. Pastor Jeremiah will be expounding all of this glorious good news in the coming weeks. So I urge you don't miss next Sunday as Paul lays out for us the dramatic result of God's gracious intervention in our lives. In fact, go ahead and be reading and be studying Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. And finally, if you do not know for a fact this morning that you are actively trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then I urge you to cry out to God that He would rescue you from your desperate situation and give you the new heart and the new life that Jesus came to bring. For God has promised that anyone who places their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, will not perish, but will have everlasting life, now and forever. We live in a fallen world, and our hearts outside of Christ are desperately wicked. But God's grace is greater than all our sin. May God grant you to know and believe that truth and trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God of grace and God of glory, to any who are here or listening, who are lost in their sins, open their eyes, Lord God, we pray to their desperate condition and grant them the faith to believe in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior. And may we, whom you have caused to be born again by your Spirit, never cease praising your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.